so lovely to see you all this morning. If I haven't met you before, I'm Kate. I'm also part of the team here in Carrick Fergus Vineyard, and it's lovely to be with you this morning. And last week, we got started on our new teaching series, Who is Jesus? And we are looking at Mark's gospel um, as a way to spark our thoughts, challenge our perceptions, and ultimately to help us each answer the question for ourselves, who is Jesus? Not in an academic way, being able to quote different verses or um, theologians, but asking the question again to ourselves, who do I say that Jesus is? And Mark sets out his stall early on in the very first line of his gospel. In verse one, he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark spends the next 16 chapters recounting different moments in the life of Jesus, always asking us the same question, who is Jesus? And I would really encourage you as we go through this series to ask yourself this question every week. I really sense that Jesus um, wants to bring a fresh vision um, of who he is to each one of us. Um, a spiritual spring clean, if you like, cleaning off the dust that has gathered around who we believe Jesus to be. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12 this week. And it's a passage with so many different people who have eyes on Jesus, trying to work out who he is. So we're going to jump in and Finlay, thank you very much, is going to read it for us. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. So... Let's start here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came in, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they cannot get to him, since they cannot get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were, were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, take up, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Amen. Thank you so much, Finlay. Really appreciate that. So what I want you to do is turn to somebody around you and say to them which celebrity that you would drop everything you were doing to go and see. This person will be in Carrick, Fergus tomorrow um, at 10 a.m. Who's going to make you, Mitch School, phone in sick, um, disrupt your routine to go and check out?
Right, okay, who did you say? I heard some very strong laughter going on down there. Who did you say? Shout out some names. Paul Daniels, as in the magician or the <laughs> Oh, he's dead. <laughs> I forgot about that. Denzel Washington. Oh, yes, Denzel. Yes, any, any takers on Denzel? Look, you're all having a good laugh. Andrea, oh, yes, I know. I would probably ditch everything to go and see Lang Lang. I don't know if you've been watching the piano on Channel 4. I love Lang Lang. He's a very famous pianist. And he's actually quite a nice guy. You know when you think these these real maestros are going to be a bit strange, but he's actually seems like he's coming across a real nice guy. So I think that is who I would ditch everyone to go and see, especially if he was playing. Um, and when we meet Jesus in Mark 2, he's back in Capernaum after spending some time traveling around the Sea of Galilee, preaching, healing, and casting out demons. And people were amazed by him. And he soon became the talk of the area. And in Mark 1, 29, it says, the news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Jesus was causing such a stir that he could no longer enter places without being mobbed. So it's no surprise in coming home to Galilee, he was greeted with a full house of visitors and a crowd outside. People were giving up what they normally would have been doing on that day to catch a glimpse and to maybe hear from this local celebrity. And in Mark 2, we are introduced to five men who were in the crowd outside of the house. But these men weren't drawn to just be part of the crowd. They weren't content to only catch a glimpse of the local celebrity. They also weren't drawn to politely stand at the back of the crowd and listen to Jesus teach. They were drawn by something more, something that would cause them to bypass the crowd, climb up onto a roof, onto somebody else's roof, rip a hole through the straw and the mud structure and to make that hole big enough to fit a man um, through it. And then they would take this man, carry him up onto the roof and lower him to the ground through that hole, all whilst in the full view of the crowd gathered outside and inside the house. They were drawn to the presence of Jesus. Who did they think Jesus was? They went to all this effort, who was he? And for these five men, Jesus was someone to put their faith in, their faith for healing and transformation. And verse five says that Jesus saw their faith. These men expected and desired a life-changing encounter with Jesus. They were so compelled to be in the presence of Jesus that they went to extreme lengths. And just as a side note, as I read um, right, this, something I never realized before, but some New Testament scholars, including the likes of N.T. Wright, who's kind of a big deal, um, believes that this was either Jesus's house or he was staying in that. So these guys were ripping a hole in the roof that Jesus was sleeping under. They didn't even care about his roof. And this raises a question to me about how am I making room for Jesus? What everyday stuff do I need to rearrange to be close to Jesus? 
And one thing I've rearranged in the last few years is how I read the Bible. And for years after I became a Christian, I used to love spending time reading the Bible. And then somewhere along the way, that changed. And I wasn't reading for it for myself anymore. I was relying on others to read it for me preaching on a Sunday morning podcasts, but I never really opened the Bible and read it for myself. And when I read this passage in my imagination, um, those outside at the back of the crowd, I think probably couldn't really hear what Jesus was saying, that it was probably relayed to them through the crowd. I could be entirely wrong in that, but just in my imagination, I was thinking that. And um, over time, I sort of intentionally reordered um, my time and to allow me to read the Bible every day, the actual, the actual Bible, because I bought myself a new one, and I try not to read it on my phone because I inevitably end up on Instagram. Um, so I'm going directly to the source. I'm sitting with Jesus in His words and loving it. And these five guys didn't care that the people or the roof were in their way. They were focused on getting straight to Jesus. Their faith in him was bigger than the obstacles in getting to him. And when I'm sort of preparing for these talks, I go into the strangest places. So I ended up reading the thoughts of an 11th century archbishop from North Macedonia, random as ever. He has the best name in the world, Saint Theophylact, there you go, there's Wanda um, putting the, cal- or putting the, um, the bank. But he, for him, the roof represented all the earthly things that can collide and distort his mind and become an obstacle to him coming to Jesus. And that really sparked thinking in my head, you know, and I was thinking about the straw and the mud and what they could represent to me. And for me, they symbolize the false beliefs that I have had and have about Jesus and myself, those that prevent me from coming into his presence. And I've shared previously with you, I think it was last Christmas, about some of the false beliefs that I had about Jesus and myself, that Jesus saw me as a spare part and that I wasn't created for any kind of purpose. And these beliefs had gotten in the way of me coming to him and living the life that Jesus had for me. And that might resonate with some of you. What are the straw and mud of wrong beliefs about Jesus or yourself that are getting in the way of you fully coming um, into the presence of Jesus? And what could it look like to remove those obstacles? And if you flip over to 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, um, it says that we are to demolish every argument and claim that is against the knowledge of God. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, we are to destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And this is what these five men did. They destroyed the obstacle that would keep them from Jesus. What obstacles are keeping us from knowing Jesus? I also love that that the man who was paralyzed was not dealing with the obstacles he faced on his own that he was part of a faith-filled group of people who were making room um, for encounters with Jesus for each other. And you'd probably agree um, that they all had an encounter with Jesus that day, not just the one that was healed. I can imagine them all going away buzzing about what had happened to their friend. 
are we surrounded by and are part of a faith-filled group of people? People who are not content to listen to Jesus from a distance like the crowd outside, but are a part of a group like those five men who are prepared to roll up their sleeves and get stuck into removing obstacles that keep people from the presence of Jesus. These men recognized that Jesus was someone to put their faith in, that all obstacles should and could be overcome to be in his presence because life transformation would happen there. And for someone with a disability in Jesus' day, they were totally dependent on their family and friends for survival. There was no social security system, no NHS. And we see in the New Testament examples of people with disabilities who were forced to beg just to survive. On top of this, there is some evidence that people with disabilities were not um, considered to be full members of the Jewish community. They were considered ritually unclean because of a belief that disease or sin was the cause of their disability and therefore for, for religious reasons were kept at a distance from um, the community. And we see in John 9, um, the disciples um, were also influenced by that belief. They asked Jesus whether the reason for a man who was born blind um, was that due to his own sin or the sins of his parents? And Jesus replies that it was neither, by the way. And for this man in Mark 2, in his context, I would imagine that there was a fear of poverty, a lack of freedom to choose how he wanted to live his life, a sense of isolation and exclusion from society. And Jesus could have quickly and easily given these five men what they want, um, or what they wanted to get from him. He could have healed this man with a word, sent them on their way and got back to his teaching. So why does he go through this whole thing of forgiving sins and arguing theological points when he doesn't in other times that he has healed people? And from my reading of this text, I believe that's because Jesus sees to the core of this man's need. He sees beneath the presenting need to the bigger, um, the bigger one in, in front of him. And in the verse 5 of Mark um, 2, Jesus says to the man, son, or in, in ancient Greek, technon. Technon is a child born into a family with a permanent place in that household. A technon is one that does not need to fear lack or exclusion because they are a permanent member of that family, one who will always be taken care of by the father. And Jesus saw that that man needed more than just healing in his physical body. Jesus saw that he also needed to know that he was a cherished, permanent part of God's family. He was included not excluded. His identity was that of son. And it says in John 1 verse 12, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, and that's Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. God offers us a permanent place in his family. He offers us a new identity as a child of God. And if you have not believed in Jesus or accepted him, he is extending that inv invitation to you today. There's no need to rip a hole in the town hall roof. He is here and longing to call you child. 
And as I wrote this talk, I thought about the little I know and talked to people who know a lot about the experience of people with disabilities in our community. And I wondered how much has actually changed for people with disabilities. Financial hardship, lack of choice, exclusion are all still realities for people with disabilities. But I am so thankful for Jim and Dina Nimick and their life group. They are exploring um, what the Bible says about disability with their life group. And they're working out how to make everyone um, all kinds of people meet with Jesus to include and not exclude. But Jesus didn't stop at transforming this man's identity. He had deeper places to heal. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 5, your sins are forgiven. And I believe that Jesus saw for this man to fully embrace his physical healing, to take his place as son, the sin that would hide and hold him back needed to be dealt with as well. And Tom Wright says, Jesus was speaking with quiet authority, which went into the paralyzed man's innermost being. Jesus knew that there was a deeper healing that needed to happen in this man, that he needed his sins forgiven. And Romans 3 verse 23 says, for everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Instead of trusting God, we want to do things our way, apart from God. We think we can live an abundant life without him and on our terms alone. And I shared this definition of sin with you last Christmas as well. It is an attempt to meet my need, my deep needs, excuse me, by my own resources. But we know that doesn't work. We can't sort ourselves out. We need help. And without tackling this man's deepest need, his sin, by only fe um, by, and by only healing his physical body, Jesus would have left this man incomplete. He wanted to restore the man's whole being to how he intended to be. And Jesus wants to do the same for us. Um, when Dave and I moved to Green Island, we bought a house that needed a lot of work. And one of the many things that needed to be done was removing the wallpaper from every wall and ceiling. And when the wallpaper came off, we found everything from small imperfections to substantial cracks. And I love that in one of the rooms the plaster came into, he put his finger straight through the ceiling. And I said, oh, you're going to need that re-plasterboarded and I thought we are mate you've just put your finger through um, and walls and ceilings needed um, reboarding and plastering the paper had been hiding bigger issues and in this encounter in Mark 2 Jesus shows that he does not paper over the cracks he doesn't make it look okay in the surface and leaves the deeper work undone Jesus desires and brings whole life transformation. He goes down to the roots and tackles our deepest need, our sin. And in Revelation 21 verse 5, Jesus declares, Behold, I am making all things new. Not just some things, not just the things on the surface, not the easy things, but all things. Are we prepared to let him make all things new, to fix the stuff that has been papered over? Are we open to Jesus' transformation of all things in our lives? 
And last Sunday, Dave and I joined Babs and Andrew McGuigan and Sharon Colwell in Carrick Fergus Manor, the nursing home um, on Prince Andrew Way. And they go a couple of times a year to worship and pray and share the Bible with some of the residents there. And it is the most beautiful experience worshiping um, with these residents. So Babs asked me, would I speak for five minutes? And I was like, sure enough, I'll do that. And I started by sharing experience from when I was a child and unheard by me, but picked up by Eagle Ears Dave. Um, one of the residents said to her friend, she's gonna tell us her whole life story. There is not, there's no saying things in your heart um, to the residents of Carrick Fergus Manor. And we see in, Mar in Mark 2, six to seven, um, that uh, Mark writes, sorry, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The teachers of the law were technically not wrong in their tradition and the one that Jesus grew up in. Um, only priests in the temple in Jerusalem could declare forgiveness of sins in the name of God. Sins could not be forgiven by a traveling rabbi in a house in Capernaum that now had a hole in the roof. To them, this was blasphemy. And in, verse, in these 12 short verses, we've seen a few perspectives of who the people in Capernaum believed Jesus to be, who they thought he was, to the crowd he was a celebrity preacher saying and doing things that left them amazed, to the five men he was someone to put their faith in for healing, to the teachers of the law he was a blasphemer and now Jesus steps up to answer the question by using a curious phrase and reading from verse 8 um, it says Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking so he asked them why do you question this in your hearts is it easier to say to the paralyzed man your sins are forgiven or stand up pick up your mat and walk so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Son of Man. It's a strange phrase. Son of Man literally just means son of a man, a human being. But it is a loaded phrase to this crowd. It is touching on something they had long been desiring, a king appointed by God who would overthrow them from their Roman oppressors and usher God's rule and reign into Israel. And it's a phrase first used in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is recounting the details of a crazy dream that God has given him, a dream of four strange, terrifying beasts that were devouring people. And at the end, he sees this vision of a son of man. And verse 13 of Daniel 7 says, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The ancient one God gives someone like a son of man authority to rule forever in a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And Jesus was indicating that he is the son of man, the king they have been long desiring. 
He has been given authority by God to rule, and that authority, he was saying, included forgiving sins in a house in Capernaum. Authority comes up over and over again in the book of Mark, and I'm sure it will be something we return to over the coming weeks, as Mark doesn't let us get away from it. And here Jesus is challenging their idea of what the Son of Man's authority looks like. And later on in Mark 2, Jesus is again talking to some people, and, and this time it is about wineskins. And he says in verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. New wine calls for new wineskins. And if the band want to start coming up. Jesus was showing this crowd in Mark 2 that the Son of Man, his authority, and ultimately his kingdom is going to look different than they thought. It was going to look like forgiveness, healing, acceptance, something that couldn't be contained in their traditional structures. And Tom Wright says, what Jesus is doing can't be fitted into existing ways of thinking and living. And that is the same for us. Jesus and his kingdom isn't necessarily going to look exactly how we picture it in our heads. New wine calls for new wineskins. And I believe that as we ask ourselves the question in this season, who is Jesus? He wants, us to, give, he wants to give us a new vision for who he is and what he wants to do in our lives and in the world around us. He wants to give us new wine. And we are going to need a new container to hold that new wine. Our old containers, our old ways of doing things, our old ideas of how God moves, our old methods of helping people into the presence of Jesus are not going to be able to contain that new wine. And I have to say, the old ways are not bad. They've got us this to this point. We thank God for them. But I believe God wants to do a new thing. And, Isaiah, and as Isaiah questions... Will we see it? Will we perceive it? And I'm not talking about anybody's age here either. We are still here, all of us. So he hasn't completed his work in and through us yet. He still has a mission and an adventure for each of us. But it's not going to look like what it did 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, 1 year ago. The old has gone. The new has come. Will we perceive it? And I believe that Jesus wants to start giving us, uh, by giving us fresh vision of who he is. He wants um, us to come into his presence so we can receive forgiveness for our sins, a new identity as a child of God and healing and a whole life transformation. And as the band are going to play the last song, during this last song, I'd like to invite you to be in the presence of Jesus here at the front our equivalent in Northern Ireland of ripping a hole in the roof by coming to the front. And we don't like coming to the front, do we? Um, the crowd might see. And no one, if you come to the front, will be looking at you because they'll all be thinking about themselves. But, and also no one is going to pray with you in this, during this time. Maybe after the band finish, if that's what you want. This is just a space to be in the presence of Jesus to worship him, to adore him, and to just give him a bit of room to do what he wants. So I'm going to pray. We're going to worship.
going to see if anyone's going to join me at the front. So Jesus, we make room now in the town hall and our hearts to meet with you. Yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs>